Hey, everybody, before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to make sure you're following Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. We're on Facebook under that name. We're on Instagram and Twitter under Testis Cancer. That's T-E-S-T-E-S Cancer, C-A-N-C-E-R, which I'm very sure that you know how to spell at this point. So make sure you give us a follow if you're not already so that when we post new content or post reminders for your monthly self-exams, you can be the first one to see it. Thanks so much. Let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by the Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. If you're listening to this before April 20th or 21st, this is a reminder that we have that virtual conference coming up on the 20th and 21st. But today, I have Olympic figure skating icon Scott Hamilton joining me. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. This is fun. I mean, we have shared experience, lots to talk about. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is the truth. Um, before we get into the testicular cancer, I mean, this is a, a winter Olympic year and it was kind of a controversial one. What are your, you know, what, what's going on in the figure skating world? Well, I mean, it, it was a phenomenal competition. Uh, the ladies event, uh, threw everybody for a loop. I mean, um, you know, uh, Camila Valieva, you know, arguably one of the best skaters to ever just with her quality and her abilities, uh, uh, just was meant to run roughshod over everyone. And then the positive drug test, uh, really put a shadow over all the competition. Um, I just felt bad for everyone at the Olympics, uh, on the figure skating side, because, you know, when you look at the the quality of the um, the men's event, you know, that was the first one out of the gate and Nathan Chan, arguably the greatest male skater, uh, you know, athletically of all time. You know, I always called Dick Button the greatest skater of all time because he invented most of the stuff we're doing, but uh, Nathan does things no one else can do. So, um, you know, he went out and just dominated after the, the team competition um, just dominated and uh, it was really remarkable. And, um, you know, then came the, the dance competition, which, you know, it, it was just spectacular, you know, the French team winning and the United States meddling and the Russians being as good as they were. Uh, it was just exciting and fun to watch. And then, then, you know, after the team competition, they didn't hold a, uh, a medal ceremony, which you have to do, and they still haven't done it. Anyway, it, it was just you know if you're if you're only gonna um, have jurisdiction over doping um, to age 16, and you're allowing 15 year olds in the Olympics, maybe you're you've you've taken your eye off the ball a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's just um, no pun intended on this podcast, but it's like it, it's like. Well, <laughs> What do you, no, it, it's the IOC. This is your championships. You know, it's a privilege to be at the Olympics. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And so I would say that the, the doping violation should have eliminated not only uh, Camilla from the competition, but it should have um, taken her scores out of the team event. And, and yet it still hasn't been resolved. You know, that, that whole idea of kicking the can down the road in Olympic Games it undermines the Olympic movement. And so then you go to the pair event after the I mean, ladies event happened. And it was just a tragedy. Um, you know, Camilla skated horrible. Uh, and then you, you know, Anna Shabrikova who's beautiful and spectacular and just humble and a really beautiful skater, you know, wins. And then uh, Trusova is second. 
and uh, didn't handle it well. And then, um, you know, Kari Sakamoto is third, which is amazing and awesome. It's just, you know, it's it, just the behavior of the Russian women just sort of diminished the entire event and the coaches and the way they responded to, you know, Valieva's performance and just, you know, the fact that Anna Sherbakova is crowned Olympic women's champion and she's by herself when she finds out that she's the Olympic champion and you no, know, everybody's paying attention to um, a temper tantrum and uh, another skater who tested positive for performance enhancing drugs. So the, the, the ladies event was truly tragic. And then we go to the pair event and Sui and Han, you know, in their home ice win. And so the, the figure skating as a whole was amazing. It was just the ladies event sort of, diminished the rest of the Olympics for, I think for everyone, because it was such a distraction and, and, you know, it just went against everything Olympic. It went against all of their belief systems, everything it stands for in our world and our culture. And um, the fact that it, to my knowledge, it still hasn't been resolved. Um, it shows that, you know, going back to 2002 when they had the controversy with the, the pair competition, they resolved that as quickly as they possibly could. That showed Jacques Roga's leadership, who is the president of the IOC. Thomas Bach, all he did was do a press conference on what a tragedy the women's event was, and he never addressed anything else. You know, it, it was a lack of leadership, and it made me wonder whether or not the Olympic movement is going to survive global politics. It's always been greater than global politics, meaning that, you know, the Olympic movement is the only movement I know or the only organization I know that can tell two warring countries to lay down their arms for 16 days and they'll actually do it. And now I, I don't know. I don't know. I think they've, uh, unless there's a change of leadership, unless, well, unless there is leadership, <laughs> um, I think the Olympic movement is in, um, it's at risk right now. That's heavy. That's really heavy. And the figure skating is always amazing. And hopefully that gets all resolved soon. Um, today though, we're going to focus on testicular cancer of which you are a survivor survivor. And you were mm -hmm. diagnosed in 1997. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. In fact, this, uh, today would have been, <sighs> yeah, I would have just been finishing up my first round of chemo. So, like today. So you're, this is like going to be your 25th anniversary year. I mean, that's a big deal. And I think that's important is, to bring yeah. up because when people get, you know, a testicular cancer diagnosis, maybe they don't know that there's a whole long life afterward. Well, and that's it. I think most people that are diagnosed with, with cancer, you know, they do what I did. You know, the second I got the diagnosis, I, I saw myself suffering and diminishing and succumbing. You know, and I think that's where we go naturally when we're, you know, when we're given a cancer diagnosis. But I like to share with people, I didn't know if it was five minutes, five seconds or a nanosecond, that fear flipped to a sense of power, courage, sense of mission, clarity, uh, next steps. And it was remarkable. It, it was something I never I never knew I had within me. So in a way I call it a, an awakening, like the strongest part of your character is, 
it, you know, when you need it, it'll come out. And, uh, and that's what happened to me. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people that are given a cancer diagnosis is they go from that fear um, to a sense of power uh, and clarity, you know, just, it's remarkable. It's like, you don't ever anticipate that being the case, but um, yeah, that's what happens. It's, it's pretty crazy. So if you don't mind sharing, um, what specifically was your testicular uh, diagnosis? Was it, you know, remember what stage it was? Do you remember the type of tumor it was? Yeah, it was a stage three germ cell tumor. Um, it was about twice the size of a grapefruit in my abdomen. And uh, for whatever reason, it just stayed there. Um, yeah, it was remarkable uh, that, you know, a person of my size wouldn't have detected something of that size in my abdomen, you know, as a touring, um, you know, professional skater. And so when, uh, when they gave me the diagnosis, it, it answered a lot of questions that I had, you know, um, things that I just sort of, I, I just swept away, you know, I was like, ah, I, uh, I, you know, I, I'm sure I'm fine. I just weird, you know, there's in my, if I push on my, my abdomen in certain areas, I could feel something and it was weird. And I was like, ah, it's just probably just me. You know, I, I never thought in a million years that something was off. And then um, the pain started kicking in. I couldn't stand up straight, which is not good for a skater, by the way. And, uh, and then I finally, I was 50 cities into a 60 city tour in the last probably five or six cities. The pain was really taking over and, um, I was under a lot of stress and, and, uh, I went to an emergency room just to have them check me out. And they said, you know, you, we found a mass and I go, Oh, <laughs> that's not good. And, uh, and then they said, uh, uh, it's either benign, malignant, or something else. And it was there that I realized they were telling me I had cancer. And then the doctor said, and if it were me, I'd take care of this right away. So I knew that um, Peoria that night was going to be my last night on tour for a while until I figured out what was up. And so I did the show, and then I called um, my manager, and um I had to tell him I had cancer and uh, he just said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to do the show. And he, and he said, well, as soon as you're done with the show, get in your bus and uh, come straight to Cleveland. I'll take care of everything else. So he got on the horn and he rallied the troops and circled the wagons. And um, I did the show and, and uh, drove to Cleveland and uh the next morning I wake up and I'm taken in for a biopsy and then, um, and then, uh, the next day was the day they came in and told me what was going on. And yeah, they were very uh, optimistic, very upbeat. They go, you know, this is a good cancer. You know, they, I remember they said, if you had to choose one, this would be a good one. It's like, who choose a cancer? <laughs> really? And so, um, yeah, it was, it was mind blowing. Um, the whole experience, you know, because I think most people think that difficult things only happen to other people. And I was one of those that said, Oh, you know, my mom died of cancer and, 
you know, my dad had, um, you know, really bad heart disease and, you know, it's like, but you know, nothing like that could ever happen to me, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, what? I'm now I'm going through cancer. So, uh, you know, next steps, you know, you, uh, ensure fertility. So that's banked. And then, um, you go into, uh, I think it was four days after the biopsy, they started chemo. Wow. Was it in the, in between the emergency room and the show that night where you talked about the fear went away in a, in a second you turned on. No, it was actually in the emergency room. Okay. It was while I was talking to the doctor, you know, I was really scared and I was really upset. And then all of a sudden it was just like, no, uh, -uh. you decide, you decide how you're going to respond to this. You decide how you are going to weather this. You decide, you know, the outcome you decide. And I was like, wow. Okay. I never saw that coming, (laughs) but it came. And then I did the show that night and it went really well. Um, it's very memorable. A lot of fun things happened in that show that were, uh, you know, I, it's funny that, you know, I, I did probably, I don't know, thousand, maybe, maybe about a thousand shows or just less with the stars and ice. And I remember that one more than most of the other ones. Wow. Just because of, things that, you know, it's like opening number. I skated great. Uh, then I did my first solo and I got a full standing ovation. It was like, wow, I'm really good at cancer. <laughs> and then, um, and then I went into the second half and, uh, I skated to a song, you know, I had to, I always broke it up. I didn't want us to do the same thing every year. So that year I decided to do a big ballad at the end of the show. That was a Libra and Stoller song called I web nothing. And so I started having a full-on, full-blown pity party. And uh, I remember, you know, building up speed into my most difficult jump in the, in the, uh, in the show. Uh, and I looked in the front row, and there was a woman there that was, you know, basically fixing her makeup and her hair, not even watching what I was doing. And I was like, how important is this? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, my life is forever changed, but the world just goes on. Right. Yeah. And it was a really powerful lesson in, uh, don't take yourself so seriously. Right. Just, you know, and I started laughing actually, it was really funny that I landed the triple S in, on a, on a very weak leg. Cause I was laughing so hard <laughs> about just the whole reality of here. I'm, you know, getting into this, I'll never skate again. Oh. <laughs> and then getting into, Oh, this is my last show ever. I better make it count. And then this lady is not even watching the skate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Lesson learned. Uh, and then I, I got through the rest of the show and, and uh, I got on my bus and, went to Cleveland. Do you think that your figure skating background, and I will admit that I, you know, I just watched the figure skating on the Olympics. I don't know what the training is, but I assume that you fall more than you land. So do you think that like maybe your background and kind of failing more than succeeding helped you with, with that moment of kind of turning it all around and and figuring out, you know, what, what am I going to do next rather than being scared? You know, I was no stranger to health issues because I had them when I was really younger. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I talked to so many uh, cancer patients that have had that same awakening. You know, it's the only way I can describe it as an awakening. Mm-hmm. 
And it was really, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just sort of, I think, you know, God puts that in us, a survival instinct. You know, it's just, there's so many things that can come into our world to um, threaten our lives. And I think that in our design, you know, we've been given a response to all of those types of things. And, uh, and yeah, I think um, it just felt so natural to um, just sort of wake up and just step into the next. And, you know, a lot of that could have been from all my years of falling down and standing up. A lot of that could have been, you know, just, um, you know, just sort of things that have happened in my life. Uh, that allow me to know that I, I, I can participate in things in a really profound and healthy way. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's, re- it's really remarkable that, that within us we have the capacity to rise up to any uh, challenge like that, especially when we're threatened in a way where our lives are at stake. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Let's talk about your, your treatment. I, you mentioned this today would have been uh, your first week of chemo. So you obviously did chemo. You, what kind of chemo did you do at that time in 1997? Was it the atopicide cisplatin that we have today, bleomycin, atopicide cisplatin? Was it a different regimen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, bleomycin was my least favorite. I hated it. I called them bleo Fridays. I had it every Friday. And it was the only, like... <clears throat> Yeah, the other chemos, you know, kind of made my hair fall out. I was doing that anyway. I'm not really worried about hair. <laughs> it was just sort of like I hung on to it for as long as I could, and then I was gone. Um, but, uh, yeah, the bleo, I mean, it's a little shot. You know, it's like that, maybe about as big around as my, probably about as big around as my finger, probably about that much shot. It's about a 30-minute push and about 90 minutes to the second after I get done with that shot. I just started getting super like tingly skin and feverish and I just have to sleep it off. So I'd just take a nap for a couple hours and I'd wake up and I'd feel better. But it was almost like, okay, three, two, one. (laughs) One of those things. And, you know, I learned how to deal with it. Just, just lay down and go to sleep. But I remember um, my oncologist, he called me, uh, it was, I guess it was the day before my last bleo. And uh, I just finished all four rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, he looked at my blood counts. He looked at the, the tumor on the MRI. And he, he just told me, he goes, you know, I think, I think we're going to skip your last bleo. And I said, you know, Ron, I, um, if you're standing right here in front of me, I kiss you on the mouth. And I am heterosexual. <laughs> Actual, you know, I'd be weird, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things Or I just was so glad I didn't have to go through that one more time. Um, but you know, again, I, I learned after I wanted to quit after round three that, um, I didn't do anything for the last time. So I just, you know, I was really enthusiastic going into the last five days of chemo. And then, um, I had the bleo and then there was going to be one more bleo after that. And it was like, you're done. Thank you. <laughs> um, one thing that my doctors encouraged me to do was kind of stick to a routine uh, as normal as possible to kind of, you know, not 
feel like I was having chemo. Obviously, with you on a 60-city tour, that would have been insane. So, I mean, were you able to... Were you able to kind of no, continue living? I didn't skate at all. No, I, well, not really. I, I, if I had to do it again, um, I would probably do it differently. Um, I probably would have been more active. I probably, I was just super, I, it was kind of where I was in my life. You know, things were a little out of sorts just in general. And um, I was just trying to figure out who I was and, what was next. And, um, I just sort of laid low and I, I didn't really want my public life, um, getting in interfering with my private medical life. So I just sort of laid low and I didn't really do much. Um, every now and then I travel, like I go to Cleveland for my chemo back to Denver. And then, um, you know, if the weather got bad, um, I had some friends in Los Angeles. It's an easy flight. I just fly out there and hang out and try to play some golf or something. But um, generally, I, I just tried to stay out of the public eye as much as I possibly could. What is that and, like? Uh, and so, yeah. What yeah. is that like being, you know, so high profile and then having this kind of private thing happen? Are people knocking down your door, like wanting to know what's going on with Scott Hamilton? Is that easy to, to lay low? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it was, they knew I was sick. You know, there was, a, there was, you know, we did the original sort of media blast type of thing. And I remember I'd be um, getting chemo and about, you know, um, at different times we, we would put out, um, you know, very optimistic and very positive press releases and, I remember laying in, in, uh, in my hospital bed in Cleveland, uh, hooked up to an IV tree, getting my chemotherapy and watching sports center. And, uh, Stuart Scott says, uh, you know, latest on me. And I was like, what, you know, and it's just ironic that, you know, I'd met Stuart when he was a sports reporter in Orlando, Florida. And, and, uh, you know, we just sort of hit it off then. And then he moved to ESPN and I'd see him because we'd rehearse the show in Stanford, Connecticut. And they were in Bristol and it was right, bam, bam, right next door. And so we just, you know, had this friendship and he'd always chime in on what was going on with my cancer. And, uh, and I always was very flattered by that, especially with the cancer battle he went through and, um, just the way that he articulated it, um, was really profound, but a good man, really good guy. And, and so I'd, I'd release little, very optimistic, very positive uh, press releases at specific strategic times. And then I just stayed out of the public eye. Interesting. So with a, with a tumor the size of a grapefruit, did the, did the chemo shrink it enough? Did you have to have the retro? Oh yeah. It went from that. It was twice the size of a grapefruit to a golf ball. Wow. <laughs> My AFP counts were 8,800. Mm. Jeez. Do over years. Do you know? Do you remember? Not that high. I don't remember specifically. <laughs> My mom was a lot like your manager. I call her my momager. She kind of did all the the worrying for me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm, How old were you when you went through yours? I had just turned 25. I was 38. 
they treated me like an eight year old, which was awesome. (laughs) Um, in the hospital, it was great, but yeah. Did you do the full blown chemo? All of it? I did a top aside cisplatin, not bleo. Okay. You're lucky (laughs) if there's such a thing as that. Yeah. The bleo is the only thing that really, as far as I know, uh, that was the only thing that I, I could really feel like, okay. And, but you know, it, it was necessary and you know, I'll do anything. You, you, you tell me, okay, here's the beginning and here's the end. And, you know, just for this period of time, you have to go through, um, you know, levels of discomfort. Um, I can do that. Just, you know, and then, you know, by the time we got done, um, the only thing I didn't like was, you know, the bleo and, and it was fine. You know, ultimately it was fine. Yeah. I was, you know, happy to do it to get rid of the cancer and I was happy to participate in a positive way in every way I possibly could. And so, um, at the end of it, I just hit the tape on time, you know, arms up, you know, the marathon was done. I got to the end of the race and then, um, six weeks later I had the, the huge surgery. Did you have to go through the big surgery? I did. Yeah. The retroperitoneal lymph sternum all dissection. the way down. No, mine was, yeah, mine was a little bit lower than the sternum. Not quite. Yeah, mine goes all the way from the sternum all the way down, and then I have another one on the side where they push the um, the offending soldier out. Yeah, got evicted, and uh, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, and then it was just back to life. It was weird though getting back to skating. I, they wanted me to wait six weeks after the surgery to let the the um, the incision really superset and heal, mm-hmm. but I was like, now I had a seam in my core, which was you know, I'm doing backflips and I'm launching and I'm trying to get back and my, my abdomen is stuck. It's not as pliable as it used to be. So it took me a while to break that down. Um, I remember I would go in on tour and we had a physiotherapist and I just say, can you just break this, you know, just do whatever you can to soften this, uh, the scar, just soften it so that it can move a little bit. And so as I skated and as I moved and, you know, again, nothing replaces movement. Movement's the best thing our bodies can do, whether we're going through anything or if we're healthy, the best thing we can do is move. And the more I moved, the more it started to open up a little bit. And I was able to, by the end of, I'd say, uh, about more, eh, probably two thirds of the way through the tour, I was getting through the show easily where, um, you know, I, I finished chemo in, I guess the end of April. No, it would have been in May. I finished it in May. I got to think about this. Yeah. I finished it in May. Um, and then I had the surgery and end of like the end of June, beginning of July. And then I was allowed to skate again in August. And then I was in rehearsal in September. And then, um, I was on the ice opening the show at the end of November. So it was pretty aggressive. I don't, you know, I, I was, that was kind of my win was kind of getting back on the ice as soon as I could. My first performance in front of an audience was October 29th of that year. And um, that was, that was remarkable in so many ways. Um, just thinking that on March 16th, I was diagnosed with cancer. And then on October 29th, I'm skating in front of an audience after you know, four rounds of that chemo and then, um, and then the big surgery is, it, it was just sort of like, wow, that's, that's 
That's amazing. If, and again, if you like, if you ask your body to do something, you'll generally get an answer. And hopefully the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the answer I got. Talk about the feeling when you, you know, when you first got back on the ice to the, I obviously, I assume the audience knew, I mean, what were they, I'm sure all behind you. Well, it was a TV special. Okay. Yeah. It was really weird because my, my cancer battle was very public. And, um, in a way, because again, I, I would, I would just send out press releases every, you know, probably after each run of chemo or so. And then, um, yeah. And then, uh, they did a big thing on people magazine and, um, then they did NBC did a big thing on Dateline. It was right about the time princess Diana died in the car accident. And my cancer story and her story were kind of married on NBC, which was, like completely opposite stories, right? One was, you know, one of um, inspiration. The other one was tragic, you know, without any reason. And so um, there's a lot of attention given. And so uh, CBS, um, who I worked for as a commentator, wanted to do a television special. And so um, we produced an hour-long television special called Back on the Ice. We did it at the LA Forum. And... Uh, uh, they wanted to fill the ice with celebrities and, um, you know, they had musical guests like uh, the opening number was this beautiful instrumental by Kenny G that all the skaters went out and skated to. And then um, Olivia Newton-John sang. Um, it was really fun. It was, um, it, it was, it was an awesome night and we just, um, we had a lot of fun doing it and, and I remember um, taking the ice and I, I thought this is more than a skate. This is a lot of people are going through cancer, wondering if they were ever going to be able to get their lives back. And this, this, what happens next is going to allow them to understand that, yes, you can get your life back. And, and I remember when I was finished, um, they handed me a microphone. They wanted me to say a few words. And I just said, this is for everybody sitting in the chemo chair right now wondering if you'll ever get your life back. And I remember the first two words I said when they handed me the microphone was, I win. I win. And, um, yeah, because I told Maria Shriver in the NBC interview that uh, it was the biggest competition in my life, and I have every intention of being um, victorious in it. And so th those first words meant a lot to me just to say, I win. And it was a statement. It was like, okay, battle over. I won now I got to step into the next and I have to do it intentionally and I have to do it right. That's incredible. You are awesome. You're a legend. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know about no, that. For sure. It was a big night. It was funny too, because they invited all these celebrities, you know, and remember Cindy Crawford was there and um, all these different actors and everything were there. And, and where I was, um, where my, where I was able to play golf, um, I'd met um, just a cart path to cart path. We were sort of passing Jim Gray from NBC is somebody I knew from all the sports stuff that we did together. And he was playing golf with Jack Nichols, the actor. Right. And so I thought this could be a fun thing. So um, he goes, Hey, hey, come here, come here. So I, I left where I was standing and I went over and Jack sitting in the cart and he's kind of looking at me, you know, and, and, uh, and a legend, right. And Jim goes, I, how do you feel? And I go, I, well, I'm getting there. You know, I just got to get a little stronger each day and I'm done with everything. Now I just got to get stronger. And he goes, what did you learn? 
And I remember thinking about this specifically. I said, you know what I learned? I learned that there's only so many drugs you can put in your body before things change drastically. Mm-hmm. And I looked right at Jack Nicholson and he looked at me and went, <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> That's a moment. So anyway, um, they didn't have Jack Nicholson on their guest list and he was in the audience. Wow. He came and that meant the world to me. I'll never, I'll never forget it. And I don't think I'll ever be able to articulate the gratitude I had that he was there to support me on that night. And just having briefly met him and seeing him around that club a little bit, you know, he's just a good guy. I really like him a lot. I think you're definitely a legend and he is too, but for him, you know, legend recognized, yeah, legend recognized legend right there. The, yeah. you and him. I, I had these Forrest Gump stories. I got a million of them, but that was one of my favorites. You know, it's <laughs> like... <laughs> so being 25 years out, do you have any noticeable side effects from your treatment still? Is it kind of hard to tell? No. I mean, I, I, I don't have anything to compare it to, you know, honestly. I don't know what my life would have been looked like if I had not had cancer. Probably it wouldn't be what it is because I wouldn't be married to the woman I'm married to now. I wouldn't have the children I have now. If I hadn't had cancer, none of that would have happened. Um, so I'm grateful for it in a really big way. Um, I don't resent it. I don't regret it. I don't um, feel cursed by it. I, I think it was the greatest blessing in my life. You know, it's given me a lot more than it took. And um, I'm just super grateful. You know, I just, I just think it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. And I learned a lot about myself and, and it was a real fork in the road. You know, I needed to figure out what my next, my second life was going to look like. My, my mom lost her battle of cancer after two and a half years. Or actually just a little over two years. And I knew that um, life is important and life is to be lived. And so I just, um, I had to figure that out. And once I did, um, I stepped into a life I never could have imagined and um, all made possible by the fact that my life was threatened. I was given the care that I needed. And I pushed myself to get back into a position where um, I took ownership and control of my next. And um, I would really urge everyone out there to, you know, fully participate in your treatment and expect and demand and participate in the next because it's really powerful. Words of wisdom. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, that's people who are in it right now, they might not be seeing the long-term like, you know, Mm -mm. like you've lived. So yeah, I mean, it's great to hear that. But I, the other thing I would say is if you're going through chemo now, be fascinated by it. Just be fascinated by it and drink tons of water. Just hydrate, 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 you know, (laughs) and high pH is way better than anything else. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot uh, that you can do uh, just by cleaning up your diet, drinking lots of water and, really not putting anything in your body that will give the cancer what it wants. Like eliminate sugar, done. No. Cancer loves sugar. It thrives on sugar. It gets excited around sugar. It's like, no, I don't think I really want to give this anything it wants. (laughs) No, you don't get anything. Sorry, (laughs) cancer. I'm not giving you anything, but 
um, chemo. And, uh, and I'm not going to resent you. I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to allow you to stress me out because you like that. I'm not going to, no, I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to laugh a lot and I'm going to look forward to the next. And, uh, and that's kind of the way I was able to get through it. That's awesome. I'm going to pretend like I didn't just polish off a bag of Hershey kisses. No, no, it's all right. I mean, <laughs> once you're past it, you're past it, but, and you got to enjoy your life. Right. But, um, yeah, it's health is an amazing thing. You know, it's just, uh, the more you participate well in it, the, the more well you can, um, extend it, you know, and, uh, the quality of life is, is really important. And that's why I do the work I do in my foundation. We got to figure out new ways of treating cancer. You know, yeah, I'm here 25 years later because of chemo, but I can't wait till there's no more chemo. Yeah. It's like, okay, it's the best we can do right now. All right. The best they could do for George Washington was bloodletting. How did that go? Um, he didn't die of the illness. He died of bloodletting. You know? <laughs> so there's a lot of that going around. We just need to really um, push the research towards an immune response to cancer, immunotherapy, targeted therapies that really just go after that cell type and leave the rest of the body alone. You know, it's just like, let's teach our T cells to, you know, really cure ourselves from cancer. And now we can legitimately, you know, survive it without all these kind of long-term effects of chemotherapy. It was funny. They, they said, uh, yeah, but he goes, yeah, you're, you're going to be fine. You know, 20 years from now, things might start to unravel a little bit. It's like, really? So I, now the clock is ticking. You know, I've got have a quality of life for 20 years and then things fall apart. But, you know, I, I stayed in, you know, I, I was very active. I toured for several more years. And then, um, you know, I've just tried to be healthy. You know, my wife is extremely knowledgeable on, on, on supplements and, and nutrition and, and, you know, ways of really rising above illness without it being pharmaceutical, or it being more natural. And so um, I credit her with um you know my quality of fitness in life right now you know i mean i i'll take the blame for some of the bad stuff but she gets all the credit for the good stuff (laughs) (laughs) talk to me about your foundation because you've used your platform to spread spread the love yeah um it's called the um the cares foundation it's a cancer alliance for research education and survivorship and coming out of my cancer you know I, i worked with the cleveland clinic to come up with cares and we were an initiative at the Cleveland Clinic for 15 years and we raised tens of millions of dollars, I think like $40 million, $35 million, somewhere in there. It's close to $40 million for uh, cancer research, um, patient services, uh, you know, sort of the intellectual and um, psychological support for patients and all the while doing research. So we did that for 15 years. And then I, I went to Toby Cosgrove, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. And I said, you know, I really want to grow the, the CARES brand. But I, I think we've got, we're about as big as we're going to get here at the Cleveland Clinic. I go, can I take the CARES brand and, and uh, create a dedicated foundation? And he said, you've done a lot for us. Absolutely. And so I still remained a fundraising entity for the Cleveland Clinic. But at the same time, it was to push research there and then with the now cares foundation um we've really put our stake in the ground to only fund research for immunotherapy and um and targeted therapy so we really are about treat the cancer and spare the patient harm so if people want to know more about us they can go to scottcares.org and um 
just sort of learn if they want to jump on board. We have this great campaign called the 1984 campaign where people can join us for $19.84 a month and be uh, a part of what we're doing. And, and uh, you know, we're building a, uh, you know, I, it, it goes kind of against my optimism, my sickening um, optimism <laughs> um, to have an endowment, but we're doing that as well. So uh, people can get involved and we're funding really amazing research for types of cancer that don't have any hope like glioblastoma multiform. You know, we, 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 that came to us a year ago and it really had a profound effect on us. And, and so for the last year, we've been really focusing on funding a big research program for an immune response to glioblastoma, which right now I think has 12% one year survival rates. Mm. And some people navigate it better than others, but generally, um, it's, it's a really tough form of cancer and we have just got to get better at treating it and better at eradicating it. You know, right now it's, there's not much they can do except resect the tumor and then blast chemotherapy. And I think that there's, there's something better out there for that. And we're going to fund it and hopefully that research will bear fruit. Yeah. I think the, uh, the analogy you used with George Washington is, is great. I never thought of it like that, but I mean, you know, who five, 10 years, who knows? I mean, like you said, we might, chemo might be a thing of the past. And well, I mean, I look at even proton therapy, right? You know, I look at proton therapy as compared to traditional radiation and the talking point, you know, whenever you're talking point, it's usually around politics or profits, right? The talking point is there's nothing that says that proton therapy is any more um, effective at treating the cancer than traditional radiation. They, 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 that's where they stop. They don't go on to say, but it, proton therapy is a very um, uh, precise form of treatment where traditional radiation is it's photon or X-ray energy where it goes into the body and it continues on until it runs out of energy. A proton is a is a particle that is placed into the tumor, so it's very precise. It's the difference between throwing like a grenade into a crowd, taking out a, a terrorist, or using a sniper. Give me the sniper, right? Yeah. But you know, um, the cost of proton therapy historically has been very high. Now, um, thanks to the efforts of a gentleman uh, I love named Terry Douglas, um, he's been able to. Uh, re-engineer proton therapy to make it smaller, better, and much less expensive. So now it's accessible to everyone. It's just insurance companies don't like paying for it. Yeah. <laughs> Some places are better than others, like Florida, phenomenal. Tennessee, <laughs> yeah, that's so good. And they have like three proton centers in Tennessee. And yet, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield is a leader, you know, in Humana and you know, all of them. They don't want to, they don't want to reimburse for proton therapy because they say we have traditional radiation. No, yes and no. Um, with, you know, traditional radiation, there's chances of uh, collateral damage and secondary cancers and um, with protons, none, right? Barely any. So, um, you know, I, if, if I had a choice, you know, protons every time. But again, that, that's, that's the thing is when you have almost a disruptive technology come in, Right, we have a disruptive technology now. The old technology, um, does it go away? <laughs> you know, and, and and that's a hard thing. You know, when they came up with um, 
uh, when they came up with, um, um, oh, uh, the words just I have a brain tumor. It's right here. Sorry, I'm having trouble with the words. Um, what's, I'm trying to think of the word. I can't think of it. Um, it's basically the next step above mammograms where you still have all the mammograms, right? Mm-hmm. The, the machines that, you know, they're there. They, they, they still do good work, not as precise as, um, as ultrasound, right? Ultrasound can almost predict cancer happening in the breast. But they still have these, you know, so that's kind of an accepted form of, mm-hmm. of, of and, you know, for some it's great, you know, and so there, there's different ways of doing it. But as we understand the human body better, um, there's different elevations of technology and um, understanding, and we need to invest in it and we need to get behind it once it hits the market to make sure that everybody has access to the best treatment possible. That's great. Thank you so much for what you've done and continue to do with your foundation. And thank you for talking with me today on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Again, it's just for all the men out there that are listening to this, you know, it's um, just make sure you tell your friends just that there's anything, you know, self self check um, techniques are really um, important. And the, the earlier you get to something, the easier it is to rise above it. Um, so, you know, getting to uh, testicular cancer in stage one, I mean, it's so much easier than stage two, three, or four. So um, I would urge people just to be aware of their bodies. Self-check is really important. Learn the techniques and tell your friends to do so, especially in these contact sports where there's damage that can happen down there. <laughs> so be well, everybody. Be well. Thank you. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculacancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.